Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope that you're doing well, that you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It is a big show, so let's get right at it. Later on, astronaut, engineer, singer, fighter pilot, and now author of a thriller called The Apollo Murders stops by. Of course, I'm talking about Commander Chris Hadfield. First, though, I'll tell you about a new movie playing in theaters right now. Run, Woman, Run is the story of Beck, an indigenous single mom at a crossroads. Ambitionless, when she isn't binge eating, she's hopping in the car to go check the mail even though the mailbox is just at the end of her driveway. Following a health scare, she decides to change her life through marathon running. Run, Woman, Run is a light-hearted film with a serious message of recovery from residential school trauma, self-discovery, and the erasure of indigenous languages. It doesn't shy away from the big topics, but at its heart, it is an underdog story about overcoming obstacles and belief in oneself. I spoke with the film's director, Zoe Hopkins, and breakout star Dakota Ray Hebert in separate interviews, which I've stitched together to tell the story of the making of this really wonderful film. I began by asking director Zoe Hopkins about her first film job, working as a featured background player on the film Black Robe, which at the time was the biggest Canadian budget film ever made. I asked, was that experience what made you fall in love with the movies? It absolutely was. I just fell in love with the process of like movie making and being on set every day. Like I, you know, first of all, I was 15 and I got to miss two months of school. (laughs) (laughs) So that was pretty great. And I'm a paddler, you know, I grew up on the water. So, um, you know, I was paddling these canoes every day. I just had a ball and I just was really intrigued by how all these departments work together to make this movie magic. And I just loved how it becomes a family, you know, and I'm an only child. So just like being around all of those people was just really, really fun. And Tantu Cardinal is in that. And one day she looked at me and she was like, oh, no, you've got the bug. You're never getting out of this industry. And it was so true. I've never worked a day outside of this industry other than, you know, the odd, weird, like, teenage job, like, yeah. once I was a clown. But <laughs> <laughs> How long were you a clown? How long did you do that? Oh, gosh. I uh, I was 17, and I worked for this balloonogram company delivering bouquets of balloons. Like knocking on doors dressed yeah. as a clown? yeah. Yeah, zippity doo dah. You know, I deliver a bouquet of balloons. It was really fun. I did that for maybe one semester or something. It was fun <laughs> and weird. I have some really weird stories from that. Yeah, I'm sure you do. I mean, it was. We'll get to the movie in just a sec, but I've not heard this clown thing before from you. Yeah, and I delivered a balloonogram to a naked man once. It was very really? strange. Yes. Was he yeah, expecting his were, the clown to arrive, or no, is he just always he naked? Was, he, <laughs> he was not expecting it. It was snowy. It was Ottawa. I was late. It was supposed to be at a basketball game, and he was already in the shower. And his friends were like, perfect timing. Come right this way. <laughs> you can't tell me how to live my life. I read about your health concerns in the paper, and I thought I'd drop by and check on you. What the too. heck? It's not in the paper. Don't worry. I was making a joke. I thought, this will be funny, but it's your health, so... It isn't funny. What's the soonest a person can go from someone like me? Here I got, oh, I'm so sorry. To a marathon runner. A couple months of city training would be fast. So what are you going to do? Thank for him. I'm giving thanks each mile. Runners! Take your mark! Oh, well, you don't got to yell. 
I said go. Run, woman, run. Tell me a little bit about creating the characters. Uh, Beck, for instance, let's talk about the main character. Tell me about mm -hmm. creating her. Beck is, I think, you know, I've been reading lately about, you know, what some people might call her in this sort of modern age of like female anti-heroes, you know, or female, um, um, that's just the representation of female power, you know, and how we see, um, I saw a great article recently about how, you know, we don't need to see a woman like um, having it all, you know, per se, to see, to be like, to be heroic, you know, and she, she, I think is really fits well into that. She's somebody who isn't going to pursue any kind of transformation, physical or, or spiritual or, or whatever, for the love of a man, you know, she's going to do it for herself and for the betterment of her family and her position as a mom, you know, and I wanted to really make that the the thrust of the story is that she's trying her best to like be her best and that it's never going to be about, you know, um, I'm going to, you know, have a hot body <laughs> or I'm, I'm going to, um, you know, get that guy. And I kind of wanted to introduce the guy, but have it be like, it's not about him. It's mm -hmm. about her. And we don't see enough stories about self-love. And I really wanted it to be about her finding that again. Tell me a little bit about finding Dakota, uh, who plays back in the film. If she doesn't work, if that character doesn't work, the whole movie doesn't work. Yeah, Dakota was the first person who sounded like what I heard in my head. You're listening to Zoe Hopkins and Dakota Ray Hebert of Run, Woman, Run. Find their movie in theaters right now. You know, we, we read lots of of women across really talented people who, who gave it a really good read, but it just really wasn't what I was looking mm. for. And it came down to like... Oh my God, do I have to play it myself? Like that means we, <laughs> we can't cast Braden Clark, who's really a really lovely love interest and he's so charming. Um, but like, I can't, he can't be my love interest. I'm old enough to be his mom. <laughs> maybe <laughs> you know? if you wore the clown suit from earlier. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. So it was such a relief and a super huge pleasure to have found um, Dakota and I um, she was on our official list uh, through the casting agent but I ended up having to find her through Facebook and be like mm. hey you want to audition for your film I saw some of your stand-up on YouTube and it was like coming down to like finding like oh just maybe we need a comedian maybe we need you know and just like somebody who could understand that self-deprecating humor you know and just like and her first read was just like yes this is it. This is like, I don't know, like kind of slacker vibe, kind of um, just really into that self-deprecation, I think is really what I was looking for. And she just really nailed it. She was really, she's really a talent. I can't wait to see her career like super take off. I think of her as like a, a young Sandra Bullock. It was kind of not how that how you traditionally get a role, I think. Um, I had just uh, <clears throat> gotten this message um, on my Facebook page uh, from, yeah, this, this director who was casting for her movie and, you know, was wondering if I'd like to audition. And I was like, absolutely. So I, um, yeah, I submitted an audition tape uh, on like that Friday. And it was like the long weekend, I think of September. And then, so then that Tuesday, it was like, boom, you got the role. And my sweetheart and I were already on our way. We were planning on moving to Toronto, um, uh, like September, you know, 12th or 13th ish. Yeah. 
And that's when the rehearsals were starting for this movie. So we got this role and I'm like, oh my God, like living like this, like Cinderella dream come true of like moving to the big city to chase her dreams. And she lands a lead in a feature. Like it was like, this is unheard of. <laughs> so it was really cool. It was a really whirl- a big whirlwind. Yeah. Well, it's your first lead in a film. So tell me a little bit about the kind of prep that you do and how you worked with Zoe. Before we started shooting, we had like a couple of days of a few days of rehearsals. Uh, and that was very much, I think, like uh, really important because I needed to have, you know, that quick um, workshop, I think. Because uh, acting for film, I'm, I'm, I was primarily a theater kid. Uh, and so I have more of a theater background than film. Um, and so learning kind of just how to, you know, like, yeah, we were able to talk through like some character stuff and script stuff. And then, uh, and it was just nice having like that, the few days of rehearsals, just to kind of like remind myself that the difference in theater and film is I don't have to project in film. I literally have a microphone attached to my chest. So I can't, I just have to talk like a person. (laughs) So, uh, learning how to talk like a human while I'm acting, that was like a weird mind trip. Uh, but it was it was really fun. Like it was really good and eased a lot of my concerns and worries. I will say, like I think it was the night before uh, I was out to, to film. I'd watched like The Devil Wears Prada, and like Meryl Streep like whispers so much of that. Like, who's this? You know? And I was just like, oh, okay, that's she's just talking like how she would. So like, I would like to thank Meryl Streep for also coaching me and how to be an actor for film. Uh, but yeah, that's how, that's kind of how it went down. <laughs> well, and you say that you and the character Beck, uh, have a, a fair amount in common. How did you use your personal experience and what were those, uh, in terms of creating the character? Yeah. So when I was 20, um, there was like a time when, uh, I think most people, you know, when they move out of their parents' house or whatever, like, you know, that was like two years of living on my own. Uh, so I just ate like crap in general i think like my supper was wendy's my lunch was doritos like that's kind of how i operated uh at that level um and at one point when i was 20 i like my chest pains were hurting more than usual uh and it feels weird to say more than usual but yeah i was just like okay maybe this is a thing so i went into the doctors and they just essentially said that my iron stores like they knew i was severely anemic because i was eating you know chipboard chicken and and corn chips so um there's nothing of nutritional value my iron stores were being leached out of my bone marrow. And so they're like, normally like this would be a cause for like a concern for cancer, but we just know you've been eating like garbage. And I was like, ah, oh, yeah, this is bad. So, and that's the reason because of that, I was, my heart was uh, working overtime to get all like, you know, oxygen around my body because I just had <laughs> crap blood. Uh, so it took a year of supplements and pills and checkups and tests before I was, um, before I was fine again. Uh, and that was like, yeah, it was 20 to 21. So after that, like, it really was like becoming more aware of my health and taking care of myself. Uh, I was on the road. I did lots of touring with theater. Uh, so I would, I would bring prenatals with me just to make sure I was getting enough iron and, and supplements and stuff like that too. And uh, like, there's just like lots of things that you have to kind of do to make sure you take care of yourself. Uh, so with this, it was almost like if I chose the path of like, ah, whatever, it'll, it'll buff out. Like it was like seeing back, seeing my future. It's like if I kept, you know, it kept up like um, the way my eating habits were. So 
it was kind of like that's kind of how I, I think I may have like played it was this is yeah easily could have been my life too you're listening to run woman run director Zoe Hopkins and star Dakota Ray Hebert on the Richard Krauss show you mentioned family how when you were on a film set you you have this sense of family you're working very intensely together there's a lot of people coming together and from what I've seen and read about the production of Run, Woman, Run, that kind of holds true here. Uh, you made it uh, in Six Nations, where you live. Uh, mm-hmm. So that must have uh, created or helped create this sense of community a little bit uh, for you going in. Uh, but what was it like to film where you live? Sure. This is the second time I've made a film I'm in one of my home communities. Like my first film, Kayak to Clem 2, I shot um, all along the coast, but part of it was in Bella Bella, which is where my mom lives, where I was born and whatnot. So I have tons of family there. And I think that if you make a film, you know, where you live, there's like all these um, priceless resources. Like you can call up a cousin and be like, can I borrow your car like right now for my movie? <laughs> and like, can you come be in this scene? When? Right now? You know. <laughs> Um, and my family catered it for us. So we literally ate home food every day. And it's something else when you bring a crew um, who are used to doing a lot of commercial work and whatnot to do something that's really heartfelt and at home and like literally in someone's home. It's a different feeling than just being on a mm, sort of anonymous movie set. Right. You know, right. They're, and they're meeting my dad and they're meeting my Samma and they're meeting, you know, so it's like my dad is dropping off our um, crafty, you know, that kind of thing. It's really like, <laughs> It's it's totally a different vibe and uh, just, I don't know if I would change it except for, you know, maybe everybody could get paid a little more money. That'd be great. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's next time. There's still shoot there. Just, you know, bigger paychecks next time. Exactly. (laughs) And there are things that are in the film that were inspired by uh, where you live. So the meat raffle, for instance. Mm-hmm. So perhaps describe for people who don't know what that is, uh, what happens in the film surrounding the meat raffle, and then just talk a little bit about uh, how being there influenced some of the decisions perhaps that you would make uh, in terms of the story. Yeah, sure. Like, so I didn't grow up in Six Nations. I grew up mostly in Ottawa and Vancouver, but um after I've lived here now 12 years, I think. And when I first moved here, moved back here, however you want to call that, it is a homecoming, even though I never lived here. Um, my dad lives here. So I uh, I went with a friend to a gig, and that was Derek Miller. And he was playing his gig at this meat draw. And I was like, what the heck's meat draw? And it was uh, this most awesome thing where they raffle off meat with uh, these, like, sticks that are actually like painted you know those sticks you use to stir your paint with from home depot yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so they write a number on the end of those and you like buy some of those at the door and and then they spin this roulette wheel and if it lands on your number you win the meat and so there's all these like random meats that you can win and then in between there's live music and so i saw this event and derek miller was playing you know, and he's a Juno award-winning musician from Six Nations, really talented fellow. And so I was just enthralled, like in the characters that were there, I was like, they're just full of actual vets and then just like Derek fans and then just regular Six Nations people who just want to win some meat. (laughs) (laughs) And I just, it was so awesome. And like, you don't get to see this kind of thing in like the city. So I just knew that I wanted to put it in a movie one day and then it, it ended up, in this movie and it, it's 
almost exactly like how it is in real life. I loved it because it was a total community affair. And that is something that like I super I super love. I had like this dream of shooting something in Meadow Lake, Saskatchewan, which is my hometown uh, and bringing yeah, like a film set there and uh, having, yeah, the community members be in the background too, or be characters as well. Um, I do, I do romanticize that, fantasize about that. I think that'd be super fun to do. And so seeing this happen in real time with Zoe's community and Zoe's family, it was really, it was really fun to be a part of. And I also just, I love Six Nations. Um, that, that was a stop that I toured through a couple times. And um, there is just something about that place that I really, I really do love. It has a piece of my heart forever too. Uh, so it was nice to be there for like a month. That was really sweet. You're listening to Zoe Hopkins and Dakota Ray Hebert on The Richard Krause Show. Their film, Run, Woman, Run, is in theaters now. And you're from a small town, 5,000 people in the town that you grew up in. It's fairly small. And you must have known about the eccentricities of a small town. I grew up in a very small town, about a thousand people. And so small towns are weird. They're just weird yeah. because there's not a lot of people in them and you get used to doing certain things. You walk up to the drive in to get your coffee, all that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I guess it wasn't that much of a stretch for you uh, to adopt the meat raffle and the, all the small town eccentricities uh, that are in this film and really create this beautiful world that the characters uh, get to inhabit. Yeah, yeah, like it definitely, uh, like the meat raffle thing, that was like really interesting. I wish that there was more meat raffles where I live, like we're on basis <laughs> desk too now. It'd be fun to throw one of those together just because it is so like, what? Yeah. <laughs> it's lots of fun, but growing up for me, my cousins would have like a pie auction um and uh but you would move a decimal point so you know you'd bid a hundred bucks but really it's 10 and it'd be, it was so much fun watching outsiders be like why is this pie going for 270 dollars like it was and we're all like this is like my, my redneck side of my family too right. so everyone's like wait what like it was so that's kind of like i think that that's kind of similar things where people would just be like kind of <laughs> taken aback um and so yeah like that's i i think that all that stuff is really fun for just uh, for for Six Nations and other communities who have stuff like that to relate to and like be see the representation, uh, but also for outsiders to be like, wow, that's kind of <laughs> who should do that. So. <laughs> and we got to show it to the community the other day um, at a community screening. We had it in in Brantford at the Sanderson Center, and I think about like seven hundred people came. It was such a great turnout of local people, you know, and just hearing their cheers and their response made made that feeling of like, okay, I represented the community in a way that made them happy, you know, and they saw the first big shot of the community where you could see the water tower, you know, it's a big drone shot where you can see as much as possible. And they cheered, you know, and I was just like, oh my gosh. And they cheered at the walk up coffee place, Lone Wolf it's called. And they cheered, they cheered it every time we saw a new location because, you know, you, you don't get to see, your little town, your little community on on the big screen very often, and when you do, like, that's I, it's a good feeling to feel represented, you know. Well, representation is important. Uh, seeing mm -hmm. not only where you live, but but people who have a similar background and similar experience to you on film uh, is mm -hmm. so important. It really is. It's nice to see, um, you know, the world getting. A chance to hear and watch some of our stories and engage with some of our really amazing talents and i'm excited that this movie's coming out at this time you know it just feels like there's a a door been opened you know and that this movie can come out in the cineplex that's just thrilling to me what do you hope people take away from run woman run i hope they take away well just you know 
being being cautious or being being more aware of their health and well-being uh, after that movie like i do i i harass my family members and friends about the last time they've gone for their physicals and right. checkups you know uh because that's really important um and so i think even that is important uh i do think yeah like um there's a lot of disconnect, or at least like I, I find that it's easy for people to feel disconnected from their home communities or their upbringing as well. And I don't just mean that for Indigenous people or, or BIPOC people, but I find that a lot of, you know, my white friends or family members maybe don't feel necessarily connected to their background. There's a lot of talk about like what culture is and that they don't think they have culture. That's why there's a lot of culture vultures out there. But I think that also because they fail to see that, you know, like I've got my, on my white side of my family, I'm very, it's a French background, you know, so I'd love to learn more about, like, I know the language or I know, the, you know, that the pieces of it, but I don't know necessarily like how my family came here to, you know, to Montreal, to go back and stuff. So um, learning more about your culture and background is, is an important part of your identity. And so I hope that this encourages people to pursue that. You've been listening to Run, Woman, Run director Zoe Hopkins and star Dakota Ray Hebert. Uh, the film is really wonderful. It's playing in a theater near you. And if it's not there right now, just wait for it. It's going to be coming across the country to everyone. Uh, check out my review at ctvnews.ca or richardkraus.ca. Uh, you'll find my rave review there. Wonderful, warm movie with a great universal message of just you know, looking after yourself. It's good stuff. Run, woman, run in theaters right now. Let's meet Commander Chris Hadfield. He was the first Canadian to walk in space and served as the commander of the International Space Station. Now, on Earth, the astronaut and best-selling author is turning to fiction for the first time. James Cameron, director of Avatar and Titanic, called Chris Hadfield's new book, The Apollo Murders, nail-biting. I couldn't put it down, he said. The new thriller is set in 1973. In this alternative history, the Cold War is still burning hot and is now being projected into space with the Soviets building an orbiting spy station while looking to mine the moon for precious radioactive minerals. With Apollo 18, now remember the real Apollo missions ended at 17, the U.S. is out to frustrate those plans. It may be that the Soviets are one step ahead, though, as they already have someone inside the Apollo program. Hadfield is also the author of a memoir, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, the children's book The Darkest Dark, which was illustrated by the Fan Brothers, and the photo book You Are Here, Around the World in 92 Minutes. Commander Chris Hadfield joins me via Zoom from Las Vegas to talk about his new book, The Apollo Murder. Is it true... Uh, that the title of the Apollo murders uh, came first as an idea from your publisher. Yeah, back uh, many years ago, the, the, one of the great science fiction authors, Ray Bradbury, he wrote a book called The Martian Chronicles. Mm -hmm. And uh, when his family was going to re-release the book about five or six years ago, I can't remember, um, uh, through the Folio Society, they came to me to write a whole new introduction to to. Uh, to the Martian Chronicles. And so I really researched it and thought about it at the time and very carefully wrote quite an extensive introduction to it. And on the basis of that, uh, my British publisher got somehow the idea that I could write a thriller fiction book. And so he, he put together a title, uh, The Apollo Murders, and um, and and you know, sketched out the three people going to the moon and back and people die, you know, but but it was really the title of it because it's quite defining when you think about it, Apollo. So, okay, 
you know, that that's the time period, late 60s, early 70s, and murders with an S on the end. So I got to kill at least two people. So it's like, how am I going to do that? That's really intriguing. And um, but I never really thought I, I had the, the skills or the time to write fiction. But I, I started digging into it. I did some training, you know, background reading. I read Stephen King's book on on writing and and did some other stuff and studied some of the really great thriller fiction writers and then just got busy and got at it did a huge amount of research and amazingly enough those three words uh over about a three-year period turned into this book stephen king's book on writing is such an indispensable guide for anybody who either wants to start writing fiction or has been writing for a while and just needs to have a refresher. It is an absolutely fantastic book. Yeah, it's it's autobiographical, really. And it's, you know, one of the best parts in it, Richard, was uh, Stephen King had one of his raw manuscripts as part of this book where he just written it before it had been edited. Mm-hmm. And it was terrible. I was so heartened by that. Like, okay, even King, when he just sits down and scribbles a bunch of stuff down, it's not always brilliant. It's not always Salem's lot or something. You know, sometimes it's just, you know, the outpouring of his ideas, but it needs a lot of cleanup afterwards. And that was, that was very uh, confidence building for me in that if Stephen King writes badly, but then gets it cleaned up and turned, then shoot, okay. So let's not be too judgmental. Well, I think one of the things that that manuscript in that book uh, said to me and really taught me and has stayed with me throughout my writing career is that the art of writing is in the rewriting. And that to me, once you get that in your head, and you know that you're going to live with this for a little while, that you just don't write it out and it's perfect on the first pass, uh, changes everything for you. How, now, on earth, how on earth did Churchill dictate his books? Like, how organized could his thinking have been that he could dictate his books in their final form? I, I don't know how he did that, but that, that sure isn't how I wrote the Apollo Murders. You are listening to my interview with Commander Chris Hadfield, author of The Apollo Murders, available wherever fine books are sold. You've referred to this book as uh, a thriller. Uh, it's a murder mystery sometimes I'm see it referred to as science fiction. I think it's more hard science space fiction. Is that probably closer to the truth than science fiction? I think it's even closer to hard science space fact. Mm. Uh, I would say 90% of what happens in the Apollo murders is real, really happened. Real spaceships, real uh, intrigue, real problems. Um, And over half of the characters in the Apollo murders are real people that Mm -hmm. some of them still alive. So I had to weave my story, my fictional story, and and some of the amazing stuff that happened in amongst all of that reality. And I think that makes the book better. Like it makes it more interesting to write and I think more interesting to read because I I even had to stick a section in the end, my author's note, to, to let people know, hey, this is real and this is real. And all these things really happened um, just because it was such a compelling time and intriguing time in space exploration. You're listening to my interview with Commander Chris Hadfield. He's the author of The Apollo Murders, which is available now wherever you buy fine books. Well, some of the things that really grabbed me were uh, the descriptions of what happens when you fire a bullet in space, uh, things like that. Did you have to research that? Or is this because of your lengthy career 
uh, and you know your intimate knowledge of being in space, it, it, was that just second nature to you? Well, the third time that I flew in space, I had a pistol with me, uh, a special Russian pistol. It actually a three barreled pistol, two with shot and one with a rifle. Um, and it's just, you know, it doesn't, it sounds nefarious, but really it's in your survival kit, like right. with a saw and fish hooks and stuff, just in case you landed somewhere in the wilds of the earth and it could be a day or two before they could rescue you. Right. Um, but I thought a lot about that. And, and obviously, uh, you know, I know how to use a, a pistol and, um, and on the secret Soviet space station, which they called Almaz, it was a spy space station in the early seventies. They actually mounted a gun, a, a big machine gun. That, that's for real. And they fired it in space. It was based on the tail gun of one of the Soviet bombers, if you can believe that. But that is, that's 100% fact. And so it made for a really interesting uh, plot opportunity for me, especially because in reality, that space station, uh, not that long after it was launched, mysteriously malfunctioned and came apart in orbit. And then, and then burned up in the atmosphere. Something that you talk about in other interviews is thinking like an astronaut. Uh, you're an engineer. Clearly, you have to have a, a certain mindset when you're going to be in space for as long as you've been. Does that apply to writing as well? Did you approach the job of writing in the extremely organized way that you would have to as you would a space uh, flight? I think it's... Kind of, I mean, it's not like I had a job as an astronaut for a little while. Mm -hmm. Like, it's who I am. You know, I, I served as an astronaut for 21 years, but but it's kind of the manifestation of, of all the things I've done in my life. So I always think like an astronaut, you know, when I'm starting the car or, or brushing my teeth or writing a, a mystery novel. And so... I approached it the same way. Uh, what is it that I'm that that I'm trying to accomplish here? And what are the risks involved? And what don't I know how to do yet? And then wrap, you know, start urgently improving my own skill set so to try and accomplish this thing that I want to do that has risk. You know, that's that's how you fly a rocket ship or or do a spacewalk. And so I applied that to writing this, you know, how do you write a, a thriller action novel, historical fiction? And, and so I, you know, I studied at the feet of the masters. I read the people that have just done the absolute best, the people I, I just love the way they wrote. And this time I wasn't just reading the story, but I was analyzing, how did they do this? How did the, what sort of protagonist did they choose? How did they keep some stuff secret and only reveal it to me? How did they punctuate like, how do you, how do you attribute conversation? You know, so you don't always just have he said, she said, how do you do all that? So I had a lot of mechanics to learn. You're listening to Commander Chris Hadfield on The Richard Krauss Show. When you're writing a mystery novel, I think the most important thing is obviously to create great characters, an, an evocative setting, uh, a mystery that compels people. But when people get to the end of the book and they, they're reading the last few pages, they can't feel cheated. Yeah. They can't feel like they couldn't have figured it out, even if they didn't. But there, you have to be very careful to lay out the story in such a way so that people go, oh, that makes sense. It's not something that just comes out of left field. Were you? That must have been something that played on your mind a little bit as you're laying this story out. It really did, Richard. And the other big thing for me is sufficient uh, motivation. 
like if you're going to kill, you know, murders, if I if I need to get my characters to kill two people, what is worth killing for? And it has to be credible. It has to be really uh, fundamental, whether it's it's something like a wartime thing or whether it's some sort of mental aberration. But whoever the killer is, they have to be convinced they're doing the thing that needs doing at that time. And so I really thought a lot about that. And then when I'd finished the book, I sent an early version of it to, to James Cameron because you know, Jim's a friend and he loves the book. But he came back with exactly your point, Richard. And that was, Chris, you need to you need to put two little changes in here because otherwise the reader is going to call you out on it. You know, you and you've got to give the reader a little more information slightly earlier so that they had a chance here to to be along with you. And those two little, you know, he's a great screenwriter and obviously a terrific director, producer and editor. But uh, those two little tweaks, I think, you know, coming from someone who's who's got more experience than I do, were really important in, in sharpening the, the Apollo murders as best as I could possibly do it. Well, perhaps he'll direct the film. <laughs> I've talked to him about it. He'd love to, um, you know, that he, he said those words, uh, but he's so heavily into what he's doing with the Avatar sequels. Yeah. And uh, he missed his mom's 90th birthday because he was down in New Zealand and with the whole COVID thing. And it's been, it's been a real hard slog of work for him, but he did put me, you know, in touch with, uh, with other movie houses and I'm in no hurry to make a bad version of the Apollo murders. You know, if we're going to make a movie out of it, it's got to be something I'm happy to have my name associated with. I don't want a cringeworthy space film, you know, that somehow my name's on. So so I'm in no hurry, but but definitely, like anything else, I want to talk to the experts and do it as well as I can. Well, these stories lit your imagination up when you were a younger man, a, a, a boy reading books, reading Ray Bradbury, the movie yeah. 2001 had a huge impact on you. Uh, this is kind of like a legacy pro uh, product for you almost, something that brings your interest full circle uh, yeah. from the literary growing up to to the present day? I never would have expected it. You know, I, I saw those books growing up, you know, as comic books and then and then science fiction books. I saw them all as finished products, right? Mm. I didn't understand the, the the writers, the authors, or the process, or, you know, just how, how it is they took an idea and brought it in so that I could then be inspired by it. Um, but I got to spend one whole day with Arthur C. Clarke, at the Kennedy Space wow. Center, uh, the, they said uh, I was working there uh, supporting space launches, and and you know in the morning somebody said, "Hey, Arthur Clark's coming this week. Anybody want to take him around?" And I was like, "Me, me! I want to do that. Let me take Arthur." And I got to spend an entire day with Arthur C. Clarke, and it was the you know the most interesting thing about that day. He was much later in his life, of course, was his curiosity and his fascination and his his desire to understand and. You know, his body was starting to let him down. He was getting elderly, but his delight in the discovery of new things and the seeing directly of where our technology was taking us uh, and, you know, my delight in just getting him, you know, to, to getting to show him some of that. But and then to see that guy who had written, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey and and who had written so many good books. Um, so, yeah, it, this book is sort of... Uh, you know, a, a tribute to some of those great tales, but it's also to the, the thriller fiction writers that I love, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle and, yeah. and uh, gosh, John McDonald or Jonathan Kellerman or, uh, 
or, you know, there's so many that, that I reread um, just to try and understand how they wrote and, and see if maybe I could incorporate some of, you know, how Dick Francis builds his protagonists or, or how Ian Fleming, why did he choose a guy like Bond, you know, right. so that he could have a recurring series. And there's so much cleverness in, in how Ken Follett wrote uh, The Eye of the Needle. Um, so, yeah, so for me, it's not just to the science fiction, but it, it's to the whole genre. You're listening to my interview with Commander Chris Hadfield, author of The Apollo Murders, available now wherever you buy fine books. Well, I have read that Frederick Forsyth, who wrote The Day of the Jackal, also loves your book. That must be a bit of a mind blower. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> I mean, I gave myself homework. One of the master you know, thriller fiction books that I assigned myself as homework was The Day of the Jackal because it that boy that keeps the secret to the end and and, and you don't know if it's you know it's be successful or not it gets way into the mind of uh, of the jackal himself the the assassin um, and and so I read that and then somehow Frederick Forsyth gets a copy of the Apollo murders and loves it. And, and so he was so kind to write on the back, you know, he said not to be missed. Yeah. You know? Even in fiction, there's authenticity, either it's there or it is not. And, and he just loves the Apollo murders. And I just, you know, in my wildest dreams, I wouldn't think that Frederick Forsyth would be endorsing my first thriller fiction novel, but there it is in, in white and black and red. Do you think that, uh, you share that same uh, quality with Arthur C. Clarke. You're always looking at the next thing. You know, my wife and I have always sort of conducted life that way. And that is, and it goes, you know, right back to when I was a kid. You know, a lot of kids said, wow, it'd be cool to be an astronaut. But I actually looked at it and said, okay, it wouldn't just be cool to be an astronaut, but I'm, I want, I'm going to be an astronaut. So how do you do that? And what changes do I need to start making now in order to enable that to happen in my life? And I, I'm still just as curious and excited about all the stuff that I haven't had a chance to do yet. And so just, you know, uh, what, 10 years back, I said the goal was, can I write a book? And that became the astronaut's guide to life on Earth. You know, little kids get afraid. And maybe I could write a useful book for little kids on how how there's a difference between fear and danger. And that became the darkest dark. But then this great challenge of trying to tell the space story, but in a really sort of uh, palpable way where you can get way involved in it. So you come away from the story feeling sort of breathlessly part mm -hmm. of, of going to the moon and back. From my point of view, it's one more way to share the incredible experiences that I've had. But it's also just my own continuum of of what's the, a cool challenge I'd love to try and do and then see if I have any of the skills. And there's lots of stuff I can't do, but, but you know, the stuff that I can do, you know, what great fun in discovering that within myself and then pushing it to my own, my own limits. You know? That was Commander Chris Hadfield. Find his book, The Apollo Murders, wherever you buy fine books. A big thanks to Chris Hadfield. Also a big thanks to Zoe Hopkins and Dakota Ray Hebert. Find Run Woman Run in a theater near you. Of course, my biggest thanks, as always, goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk again soon. <laughs>